And it shows it has battery. Oh, it went down to one bar. I don't know. All right, we'll see what we got here. Today I have a lot to say. I thought about paring my notes down. Um, I looked at paring my notes down and Keep those questions in mind for um, as the sermon's going. And let's go ahead and get started. So today's topic is staying invested when there aren't any returns. Um, staying invested when you are just weary and tired. This whole month has been about the attitude of staying invested in people and caring about people. And of course, one of the things that we have to remember is that we are not alone in, in our work of staying invested. We talked about in the beginning of the year the concept of the crib, um, which was the covenantal community, the relational community, the infinite community, and of course the biological. And we have a template for uh, how that works in who Christ was. Um, and because of him, we know that that's a restorative work. We also know that when we invest in each other, we're supposed to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, which was last week's. So I want to take a moment, or really take the entire sermon, to dispel the concept that um, basically the way that we do things, uh, investing in people, is through this myth that there is of uh, personal empowerment and um, personal limits. The truth is, is that the work that we do as um, workers for God, ministers of reconciliation, is, is honestly thankless. It's, it's thankless work, and um, that's one of the reasons why it has to be done by the power of God's Spirit and not by our own power. So, with that said, that doesn't mean that it's not hard. In Christ, we are... See, here's your questions. They're kind of small, though. In Christ... It is true that we are sufficient. Um, that said, we do also have a tendency to limit our capacity to handle such issues when we're dealing with people. Amongst Christians, our limits are common, right? Like, we, we, we make them a, a common topic. The, I even just heard last night, but I'm not Jesus. You guys heard that before? Like, you get to a certain point where you say, Here's what you need to be doing, and then a person says, oh, that's too hard for me, and then it's like, oh, by the power of the Spirit, you can do these things, or um, you can learn about things. 
uh, Jesus would have done it this way, and then somebody says, I'm not Jesus. That doesn't apply to me. I even heard that last night. So, um, <clears throat> amongst Christians, we have a tendency to develop these limits and say that we have these limits in, in helping people. And so a question that I want to ask is, not one of those questions, what is our capacity as believers to handle investing in others? The truth is that, biblically speaking, our capacity is limitless. That's the answer. Biblically speaking, our capacity to handle helping each other is limitless. But that is because it's not by our own power that true investment happens. So, with that said, let's just go beyond this and say that even if it wasn't, even if it was by our own power, we have a responsibility to help other people. Um, even if that is thankless. Thankfully, it's not by our own power, but we do have a responsibility to help other people. And I'm going to just sort of give you just a couple sermon um, addresses and then just read a couple because I don't want to inundate you with too much and bog down um, how long the sermon will be. So <laughs> let's take a look at Hebrews 13, 16. It says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing for God. James 2, uh, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Uh, Philippians 2, 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Galatians 6, 2, If any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Of course, that is an outworking of the command of Christ to love God wholeheartedly and to love man tenderheartedly. Um, let's take a look at John 15, 12. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And now let's sort of take a look at Romans 15. And this is the one I'm going to, if you guys didn't know, I'm just sort of cutting scriptures short. It may seem like I'm reading all these scriptures, but I'm actually reading bits of them. Uh, Romans 15, it says, We who are strong... Romans 15.1. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this, speaking about people who are more mature or less mature. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others to do what is right and build them up in the Lord, for even Christ didn't leave to please himself. And if we skip down to verse 6, it says this, Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we can see, it's not our responsibility to be involved in others' lives as an act of our love for Christ alone, but it's also our responsibility to be involved in each other's lives as a uh, response to the command that God gives us. It's not just altruism that Christians are nice. You can't just be, uh, some Christians can't just be nice where other Christians can't, or can be nice, can't, can't, you can't have, <laughs> as a Christian, you have a responsibility <laughs> to be involved in other people's lives. There you go. Um, I can already hear the red flags popping up in Pastor Monty's thought process. He's going to talk about meddling, and if you listened to uh, Culture Insanity, you would have heard a conversation about that, and I want to address that because it's a very important point. A warning about meddling is this. Just because we are supposed to be involved in other people's lives, just because we have a responsibility, a command 
to be involved in other people's lives does not mean that we can run roughshod over another person's life. And that is, in fact, the opposite. We have to remember Paul's exhortation that we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And remember, as we talked about last week, that being kind to somebody in the Greek means being useful. We are told not to meddle. We are told not to meddle. We are also told to be kind. And so the reconciliation of the two uh, appears in a lot of various scriptures. So let's read a couple of these scriptures. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 11. It says, While we were with you, we gave you the order that whoever doesn't want to work shouldn't be allowed to eat. By the way, that scripture is, is hidden in the kitchen on one of the tiles, if you're, <laughs> if you're wondering. Whoever doesn't want to work does not get to eat. Um, we hear that some of you are not living disciplined lives. You are not working. So you go around interfering in other people's lives. Let's be clear. You are not working. Therefore, you go around interfering in other people's lives. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things that they ought not to. 1 Thessalonians 4, You should aspire to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work with your hands, as we have commanded you. Lead a quiet life and work. 1 Peter 3, 16-17, But do this in a gentle and respectful way, keep your conscience clear, and then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live, because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. So, in all of these passages, and many more, we can see that our attitude towards others is that, in fact, of an attitude of usefulness to the person that we are involved with. That is the attitude that we're supposed to have. Usefulness to the person that we are involved with. In fact, it is when we are not useful in our own walk and discipline that our investment in another then becomes meddling. And as Pastor Monty would say then, we should just better mind our own business. Proverbs describes the foolishness of one who gets involved in a fight that is not his in this way. Proverbs 26, 17, remember this passage. A person who is passing by and meddles in a quarrel that is not his is like the one who grabs a dog by his ears. That is to say, they are stupid. Right? You grab a dog by its ears, you are likely to get bitten. Or as my father would say, cruising for a bruising. Um, <laughs> it is absolutely our responsibility to share in our burdens with each other, but out of kindness and tenderheartedness toward that person. And remember, kindness refers to usefulness. It doesn't refer to having a smile on your face. It refers to usefulness. And remember, that tenderheartedness refers to the assuredness of a person's value in God. Those are not descriptors of affection. Um, they are all about doing right by the restorative process of the artwork that man is before God. And Jude speaks of a worthy investment this way. In Jude, 
quote-unquote, chapter 1, verse 20. That's a theological joke because Jude only has one chapter. Okay. <clears throat> Jude 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So we need to have the right mentality about the way in which we invest in others and in what will make that investment successful, or rather what will enable us to see that success. And this becomes incredibly important when our investment is in people who are ultimately beyond the scope of our power, right? People are beyond the scope of our power. We are finite beings, yet we are in the image of an infinite God. And that's why, as discussed again last week, only the power of the Holy Spirit and the infinite personhood of God can holistically affect change in someone. And oftentimes, this lack of a mindset of useful investment can be the beginning of a person's descent. This lack of a mindset of useful investment can be the beginning of a person's descent into despair when they're caring for others. And when our investment is yielding little results, we need to ask ourselves whether our investment in another is actually just a form of meddling. When we're not yielding results, we need to ask ourselves, are we really being useful to that person? Or are we just getting involved in their lives? And certainly, you've seen that before, right? Where people are just getting in your life, and they're telling you what they think you should be doing, and they think that they're doing right by you, but really, they're just meddling. Because they're not being useful to you. To not have this attitude of usefulness in check, this kindness is a huge cause of what the world calls burnout. But, of course, that's not the most, dangerous, um, the most dangerous one. The responsibility to care for a finite being who's made in the image of an infinite one is, of course, difficult. We ourselves are both finite, and we feel the need for this type of infinite care. And when we can't provide it for another... We feel the weight of that, right? We feel empathy when we realize that somebody isn't being taken care of. We look at ourselves and we're like, oh, what if I was not being taken care of that way? Or perhaps I remember when I wasn't being taken care of that way. Or perhaps I am not being taken care of that way. Guarding against becoming too weary requires more than just discipline. For many professional caregivers, the weight of ministry and its subsequent failure is given uh, this secular description, which has weighted its way into Christian language, of burnout. This is how the Burnout Protection Handbook for Foster Parents and Social Workers speaks about it. Here it is, a quote. 
Burnout can be seen as a pattern of physical and emotional symptoms, behavior, and attitudes which indicate that an individual has become worn out and has exhausted his or her energy and resources. It is brought on by attempting to meet the excessive demands which stem from the individual's own expectations and drives, his actual role and relationships and interactions with others, and environmental factors, including those contributed by the systems and societies within which he must work. Burnout occurs when the individual must adapt to and meet these excessive demands over a period of time without relief. And finally, burnout will eventually affect one's ability to function on the job and as a person. That's a mouthful. Basically, what's that, what, what that is saying is that a person has given themselves over to demands which are excessive in nature. And over time, they deplete that person, and then the person burns out. Burnout has four dimensions. One is the emotional exhaustion. The second is negative attitudes, negative mindset. The third is a negative self-evaluation. So now it has, you know, it's not just thinking, but now you're applying it to yourself. And then the fourth one is then applying it to others or emotional distance from others. According to a comprehensive survey by uh, the Barna Group, you guys heard of the Barna Group? It's, it's on par with like Pew Research and so on and so forth. In 2017, it was commissioned by Pepperdine University and drawn from interviews from more than 14,000 Protestant pastors from over 40 denominations spanning the theological and political spectrum. Burnout is a cause for concern in one of three pastors. So that means that either James or I or Colin or Adam, one of us is burnt out or burning out according to the statistics. Let's not throw Pastor Dad into the mix, and that adds even more. To that end, many churches then account for it, right? They account for this in their programming and scheduling. For instance, the term sabbatical. You guys have heard that term, right? People taking sabbaticals. A time where, colloquially, a professional takes an extended amount of time to be away from their profession. What word do you think that's rooted in? Sabbath. The day that's remembered for being the seventh day of creation, wherein God did what? Rested. Sabbaticals, of course, are rarely taken for reasons of reflection as what happened with God when he rested on the seventh day. Mind you, God did not rest because he was tired. God did not rest because he was tired and in need of rest. Instead, he rested to ponder his creation to call it good. So he rested to take a moment to enjoy what he had created. That's not the same thing as burning out. In other words, God didn't need to take a day off because he burned out on making creation. Monster.com, a website uh, for business professionals, speaks of reasons why people take sabbaticals. Um, to shake things up, to make a difference, to gain experience, to discover other cultures, to get educated, to improve your health, and the last one, it's better than quitting. <laughs> Notice that in none of these secular reasons, none of the secular reasons for taking a professional Sabbath, does anyone step back to ponder how good things are. 
Resting is always done from a deficit. The idea being that something is lacking and then needs to be gained, fixed, or subverted in order to fix the deficit. But that is not what a true Sabbath is. Yet, even in our churches, even in our churches, we find that sabbaticals of this nature are not only encouraged, but in some cases are part of one's employment package. And the reason for this, of course, is to discourage burnout. The stress when caring for others is simply too high, especially when, in a lot of cases, we don't see a return on the investment. Consider this. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work, for we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder, but now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have in Jesus Christ. So then, of course, the church worker or the church member looks at that and says, does it really matter if we have an investment that pays off? Well, it does. That being said, that is a different discussion than this one. We can get into all of that, um, and in fact, we probably will, but not today. The question is, when we become weary from not seeing our investment pay off, should we view that weakness as inevitable? That's the question. Should we view the weakness that comes from being weary as inevitable? And is that why things like sabbaticals make sense? Is that a biblical position to be taking as a church member, as a church worker? As we always examine mindsets, we always have to do that here. So I want to be clear, I don't have a problem with the action of a sabbatical. And some of the reasons that people um, go on sabbatical would be appropriate if they were called like working retreats, for instance, like what we're about to take. Or uh, continuing education. Lots of people take sabbaticals to, like they'll go um, study under a professor or whatever, like go to, to uh, Europe and study. Um, so for continued education. But of course, what we're talking about here, that's not the same thing as a sabbatical to discourage burnout. That's a completely different thing that we're talking about. Whenever we look at church leadership, the way that we look at church leadership when we're understanding mindset is we need to go back to the family, as I've, I've demonstrated. Um, and remember that Christ is the head of the husband as the husband is the head of the wife. And remember that the first qualifications for elders are how they deal with their family and, and so on and so forth, right? So a question I have for you, and this should be prescient to a number of you, is when do parents get to take sabbaticals? When they're dead. <laughs> When do parents get to go on sabbatical? And, um, you know, we can joke that it's, you know, like when we take trips without our kids, right? 
that we're going on a sabbatical. But even when we're weary from our children, and just so you know, my children who are in the room, um, we do get weary from our children. Um, <laughs> when we're weary from our children, we're never actually on vacation. This is an important thing to note. We're never on vacation from them. Our hearts are always with them, even if we are not present with them right where they are. Our minds are always working on keeping them safe, on bringing them for God pure. And that is always an active process. And it doesn't matter what age you are, and it doesn't matter whether you're there with them. No good shepherd takes a sabbatical from his sheep without taking a bit of his sheep with them. And this is modeled in the example of the sheep pen of a shepherd, right? And you think about how a sheep pen is built. The sheep pen is designed as a circular enclosure with high stone walls around it to keep out robbers, to keep out wolves, to keep out bears, things like that. Except the opening that allows the sheep to go in, of course, is just open. And the shepherd sleeps in the opening. He rests there in that opening so that any wolves or thieves would have to go around him. In other words, a shepherd is never really off the clock when he rests. This is a model for our care of others. Our care for others is modeled off the care of God who cares for us, the good shepherd, who would give up his life for us. God, yes, he rests in the enjoyment of his creation, but he doesn't rest in his protection. He doesn't rest in his sustenance. He doesn't rest in his providence for his creation. And how weird would it be to think that you can't talk to God on the Sabbath because that's his day off. Think about how ridiculous that concept is. Pastor Dad likes it. Okay. Though God rests, God does not allow for the, she for the, for the, sh the shepherd, for the sabbatical mindset in taking care of his creation. Therefore, God's system doesn't include a burnout clause. Now, many churches may, and that's something they'll wrestle with God about. But God's system doesn't include a burnout clause. Christians with burnout, quote-unquote, Christians with burnout, the, the phrase, is simply a euphemism for speaking of man's limitations. And that's a strange thing to excuse as a believer, and this is because our concept of inadequacy is not as a result of not enough me time. Not as a believer, it's not. Our concept of inadequacy has nothing to do with not getting enough me time. Our concept of inadequacy should be built into our theological understanding. In other words, to say that you're being burned out is a little like saying that you're frustrated that you have to eat food. Or that you have to drink water in order to live. Or that you have to breathe air in order to live. That is a given fact of who we are before God. That's because we're finite beings. And so we are always and ever shall be 
even in the perfected state gracefully given to us by Christ, dependent on our maker. We are always less than, except when he, by his grace, is sharing his glory with us. We are finite. And even if we were sinless, we would still burn out. Consider this, Romans 10. Romans 3, actually, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah says it like this. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sin sweeps us away like the wind. Even our good deeds, people, even our righteous deeds, even our good deeds in and of themselves, when you take all of them and you add them up together over the course of your whole life, and you come together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and bring all of their righteous deeds with your righteous deeds, and you bring all of those before God, and you say, look at how righteous I am. They fall short. The term filthy rag is a strong term, by the way. The word filthy is a translation of the Hebrew word idah. And it means the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. So therefore, the word rag, filthy rags, our righteousness is as filthy rags, is a translation that means my righteousness is as good as a soiled feminine hygiene product. It's essentially as good as a bloody tampon. I didn't write it. That's what the scripture says. Thankfully, it's by grace that we have been saved. Through faith and not of ourselves so that we cannot boast about it. Thankfully, it is not by our own capacity that we do good and that we understand our power to affect other people's lives. Because if it was, it would be as good as a bloody tampon. No, instead we focus everything through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we're experiencing burnout, we have to ask ourselves if we have the right power source. We have to ask ourselves if our understanding of investment in others is from the right place. Because by my account, as I read the scripture, and as I understand the scripture, we cannot experience burnout when we're plugged into God. We can, of course, experience lapses of faith. We can 
experience lapses of strength, lapses of judgment, lapses of focus, but that's not what burnout is. Remember, burnout occurs when the individual must adapt to and meet excessive needs. The implication here is that burnout occurs when we're meeting something that is excessive for a prolonged period of time. And as believers, nothing is excessive. Nothing is beyond the scope of God's control and power. God has our backs. He provides for all of our needs. And he has bumpers on creation and spiritual forces so that we can never lose the war for our existence. And if we experience burnout, then we have not fully grasped the reality of God's providence. You want to know why your machine doesn't work? It's because it's unplugged. Plug it in. The idea that we just need a win. You guys ever heard that? I've been going so long, I just need a win. The idea that we just need a win is if we don't already have the only win that we will ever need in our relationship with God is repugnant and disingenuous. So we need to do away with the notion that to help others, we must make built-in excuses for our inevitable shortcomings. This is just simply not so. Consider the following verses. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Psalm 81.10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Psalm 84.11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Psalm 18.2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Matthew 6.25-34, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what will you put on? Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour 
to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. John 15, 6, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and bear the fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he would give it to you. That is just a small, small sampling of verses. And this story is told throughout Scripture that we are more than conquerors in Christ. So how can a person who is provided for by God so fully truly burn out when investing in others? The answer not a popular one. Not going to make me friends to say it. But the answer is that they're not living by faith, but instead by their own works. They are not living by the power of the Spirit, but by their own power. And this is not to say that that's all the time. This is not to say that they are not me sometimes. And it may be just a simple lapse in their faith, but it is not the truth of their situation. It is their personal truth. It is their personal story. And we see this not only in ourselves if we look deeply enough, but we even see it in the disciples. Let's take a look at Matthew 14, 27 through 31. Jesus is walking on the water. The disciples see him. They don't know who he is. They're afraid. They're like, what? There's something walking on the water toward us. Jesus says this, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, Come. So Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus, just like that. Peter gets out of the boat, steps onto the water, and starts walking toward Jesus, just like that. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And so immediately, Jesus reached out, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Peter asked Christ to call him, to give him authority to walk as he walked. Jesus gives him authority. Peter steps out. Peter gets distracted and begins to sink. He calls up to Jesus. Jesus saves him, and then scolds him, and then we rinse and we repeat. That's the cycle right there. Jesus then says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice that Jesus does not scold Peter because Peter couldn't walk on water. 
It wasn't, why can't you do what I'm doing? You had to sink. Look at, look at how ontologically different we are. Rather, it was the fact that, tr- that Peter tried to walk on water on his own. That he took his eyes off Jesus, which immediately resulted in what? Sinking. He took his eyes off Jesus, which immediately resulted in sinking. Instead of keeping his eyes on Christ and moving forward, Peter got distracted, and he paid more attention to the wind rather than God standing in front of him. And Jesus calls that a lack of faith. And when we begin to burn out, when our spirits begin to sink, when our lives begin to sink, is it because the odds are stacked too heavily against us? Is it because we're denser than the water we walk on, and so we're going to inevitably sink? Have we forgotten that the odds, as Christians, have we forgotten that the odds are not stacked up against us at all? But in fact, they are stacked up against our God. And can those odds, those heavy winds of Peter, begin to even compare to our God? Where is the truth of our Christian victory? Seriously. What creatures of little faith are we? I would submit to you that if you're becoming discouraged by the trials and tribulations that are before you, by the incessant winds that rock your boat, it's not an issue of your capacity being overwhelmed. And it's not because you are not educated enough to speak into someone's life about the wonders of God. It's not because you are a finite being, even. It is because you have chosen to shift your focus to the storm rather than the God who sleeps in it, who walks in it, who created it. Consider this ancient creed in Colossians. This is 1, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything that was created and is supreme over all creation. The idea that our focus shifts, that's easy. That's an easy one to empathize with. We all get distracted. But pay attention. Focus takes discipline, yes. But to what are we disciplined to? As outlined before and illustrated in this story, our focus should be on Christ and his command, the law of love. But this type of focus isn't enough. It's not just enough to know that you need to love people. Our focus shifts due to the attitude of our hearts. Our hearts need to know that we need to love people. 
And when we do things by our own power and by our own design and to our own comfort levels, that is all the beginning of that sinking and that despair. And then you add that. You add not only what's going on with you, but then you add another person's life and you're going to invest in another person's life. And you have to repair that focus, not only in your life, but in their life. How do we do this? Well, the scripture says that the way we do this is to wait on God. We must wait on God. Consider these passages. I'm only going to read a few of them because there's like 20 of them here. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Philippians 1, 6. I am, unsure of, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Psalms 27, 1 through 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arises against me, I will be confident. You guys know where confident comes from, right? The Latin for confident. Confide. With faith. I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. James 5, 7 through 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Romans 5, 3 through 4. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Psalms 41 through 17. I have waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined, and he heard my cry, and he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon the rock, and he made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. See, waiting on God and having faith are intrinsically connected to each other. And notice that the idea behind waiting on God carries a hope of God's fulfillment of his own work in our salvation. 
Do you remember that definition of love that I gave you at the beginning of the year? It's essentially understanding that God would fulfill his own work. It is a pledge to stand by God. This is what our faith is. It's a pledge to stand by God as he does what he does, how he does it, when he wants to do it, because we know that he will do it. This, of course, goes in the polar opposite direction of man's sinful intuition. Men rest on their own ability. This is what we're told to do, to rest on our own ability, to rest on our own timing, our own designs, our own power. And that's the prime reason that we burn out. And it's the prime reason that we think that we need to see returns on our investment. Because getting a return on our investment would allow us to have a tangible truth that we accomplished something. And that then becomes our focus. And then we can begin because we're the big man. We accomplished something by our own power and our own design, then we can step out on the water by our own work. That's a pride issue. You want to know why you sink? That's why. Not just a focus issue, which then becomes pride. But of course, with all the pride issues, this is actually a love issue. <laughs> so it's a focus issue, it's a mentality thing, it's a pride issue, now it's a love issue. Well, yes, guys, it's all connected, right? It's holistic, it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is a love issue. It's an issue of not loving God wholeheartedly, but instead of loving your own self and what you have accomplished. And you may say, oh, that's too condemning. That's too simplistic. But I would challenge you to be intellectually honest. Jesus commands that we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and he commands that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves tenderheartedly. And these are the laws of love. And do you think it's by coincidence that losing our focus on Jesus in this area seems to directly correspond to the ways in which people burn out? Remember the four ways, the four dimensions of burnout? Emotional exhaustion, which is the inability to have clear thoughts, being bitter in our mind, having negative attitudes, that's being bitter in our mind. Emotional exhaustion, an inability to give ourselves in our heart and soul to something. Then having negative attitudes, being bitter in our mind. Then having a negative evaluation of self, losing self-care as made in the image of God. And therefore devaluing the image bearer and their status 
emotional distance from others, applying the image bearer status to others, we see that there is a correlation. People who are burnt out, they don't love God fully. I said it. People who are burnt out, they don't love God fully. And because they don't love God fully, they don't love man fully. And the entire dimension is there. We see that there is a correlation and a causation between loving properly and burnout. And that is to say that when one is burnt out, it is their ability to love others and God that is affected. But the scripture doesn't teach that we love each other by our will. In other words, though the world tells us that love is the cause of things like chemicals in our brain and a mindless reaction with our environment, scripture tells us that real love has a cause and that real cause for real love is God. Consider 1 John 4.19. It goes like this. We love because he loved us. We love because of his love. It's not only by his power that we are capable or by his grace that we are saved, but it is by his love that we are filled and emotionally charged and therefore capable then of loving others. And when we... We refuse to acknowledge, when we refuse to acknowledge the love of God because we'd rather love our own selves or the creation rather than our creator, instead focusing on other things, even good things, like his power and his grace. We then are not filled because you can't take one aspect of God without accepting the whole of who God is. And therefore, you are not loving God wholeheartedly. And therefore, you will burn out. Therefore, the way to invest in someone in the world without suffering burnout is by guarding our minds. And by guarding our minds, we guard our hearts. And by guarding our hearts, we guard the process. And this month, we've already noted that the beginning of this is going to be understanding certain truths. Number one, that we should invest in people. Number two, that we have to invest in people in a way that restores them to who God made them to be. Number three, we have to invest in them in a way that respects the whole person that they are and not just a small aspect of who they are. And number four, we have to invest in others in the power of the Holy Spirit. But now... Let us understand that our acceptance of proper care includes accepting not just those four things, but also that God is the main driver of the process of care, and that our love is a reaction. It does not come from ourselves. It is a reaction to His love, and that our ability to help others is built upon the premise of His faithfulness and not our own ability. Not our education, not our accomplishments, not our how much sleep I got. Even if those things are good or helpful in our process of care. And this is the natural conclusion to the idea that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we work in the lives of others. It is recognizing that 
if this is true, then it is not truly us who completes the good work. But it is and has always been God. Without understanding that it is God who does the work in us and others, we then are left to be the sum of our parts. Which, sure, is meaningful and substantial, but even in its perfection is nothing more to God than a bloody tampon. For an image bearer of God to be powered, it has to meet the source, which is God himself. As stated earlier, the idea behind waiting on God carries a hope of God's fulfillment of his own work in creation. It's a pledge to stand by God as he does what he does, how he does it, when he wants to do it, because he will do it. And to do this, we have to truly know God. And this means that we have to meet him where he says that we meet him. You can't plug into God by going out to nature alone, because God says that you don't plug into him that way. He says that nature tells us about who he is, but the way you plug into him is through what? Scripture, local church, and doctrine. We do not find God in means of self-sustenance, self soothing or self-aggrandizing despite what the world tells us. Our best self is not achieved by being more authentic in times of trial. It's not achieved by having a let it go, let it go mentality. Yes, I'm calling you out, Frozen. We do not find him by removing all influences from our lives except those that echo our own sentiments. This sort of proverbial backpatting is the grossest type of delusion. The scripture says that loving God wholeheartedly and each other tenderheartedly is hard, imperative work. It requires us to hold on to our faith. Hold on to the promise of a new life beyond this one. Hold on to the promise that God is not detoured by our storms. Hold on to the truths that we have been taught. It requires us to reach out to Him. Reach out to Him through constant prayer. Through constant reading the words of His Spirit in the Scripture through learning about his son by being engaged with the body in the local church, it requires us to accept his narrative and not our own narrative, allowing ourselves to believe in those promises that he gives to us, promises of eternal life, promises of full equipping, promises of complete and utter victory. You heard Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He leads me beside. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. 
He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil if you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice the narrative here. Because God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. How different is that from the way that Christians have come to look at their own abilities? Yeah, God is my shepherd, but I lack sleep. I lack training. I lack education. I lack faith. (laughs) Because God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He takes care of my every need. He refreshes my soul. Let's put that in today's terminology. He recharges me. You're not being recharged? Hmm. Maybe you're not following your shepherd. Yep, I said it again. He guides me, even in the darkest places. Not just the good places. Do you think the valley of the shadow of death is good? I need not fear because I am with him. His discipline is what is best for me. In that is where I find my comfort. There is victory in my relationship with God, even with them around me, even with my enemies around me. He will make a table, a banquet, in front of my enemies. I will be taken care of. I have a purpose that meets the whole of my person. And so much more. Is that how you view your life when you're getting tired and weary? We were just singing that song. This is the day that the Lord has made with the kids. And I was telling them, here's the point of that song. You're having a bad day? God made this day. This is your shepherd. It's okay for you to say that you're weary, but it is not okay For you to say that you are hopeless. We need to invest in people. We need to invest in people in a way that restores them to who God made them to be. We have to invest in them in a way that respects the whole person that they are. And not just a person. Or not just a part of who they are. We have to invest in others in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the truth is that too often we suck at it. We are bad wives. Christ is the husband, right? He's the bridegroom. We as the church, we're bad wives. Rather than rely on our relationship with God, we have forgotten who he really is. And in that, we have lost any real power in our lives. And when we look to and fro for an answer as to how to handle the difficulty of relationships and helping people and getting invested in community and all of these things, instead of going back to our husband and getting recharged, 
No, it's okay, I'll do it by myself. I got that. Except you don't. And then you burn out. And so we choose to ignore people because we're burning out. And instead we focus on things. And when we can do this no longer, we look to people. When we can do this no longer, we reject God's character in our salvation. And we forget that we are to restore. And then we choose to focus only on small facets of the people because the whole person, that's too hard. And so we, we end up not addressing the whole person. And of course, we choose to do this by our own power, as if we're alone and not in a relationship with the God who made that person. And then we burn out, and we lose our love for man altogether, that tender heart that we're supposed to have, because we refuse to love God with our whole heart. And then we have the gall to say that it is because we are simply not strong enough, because we need our me time to recuperate and become our authentic selves again. And I have seen many a soul come through this church who said, I need my me time, and I need to find my authentic self, and this is just, I'm running too hard. They decided to go out and to take a break and to seek their authentic self and to have their me time. Liars. Liars. This is what John the Beloved said. 1 John 2.19 These people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed. When they left, it proved that they didn't belong to us. I didn't say it. John said it. All because those people wanted to tell their own story. And they wanted to tell their own truth. And you know what? So do we. We all want to tell our own truth. Our own truth about a false, impotent Jesus who empowers us to be our best selves. Except when it comes to any area of focus, except when it comes to any ontological categorization, when it comes to any test, when it comes to any questions, when it comes to any disciplines in our lives. This, of course, is man's story. It's not the first time that we have forgotten the truth of God in our relationship with him. God always calls us back to the truth. And as demonstrated earlier in the book of Jude, for instance, we need to call people back to that truth. We are all liars. We all want to do things in our own power. It's not too late. People can come back. Just as fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
Consider Hebrews 12, 2 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trip us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people, and then you will not become weary and give up. Because of the joy that awaited him, because of the joy that awaited him, he endured the cross because he loved us so much, fulfilling the law of God. And this is where we find the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, according to Scripture. Just as with Peter walking on the water, if you want the strength to succeed in caring for others, look forward. Focus on Christ, your true husband. As we follow in his footsteps and we seek to love people tenderheartedly, it's not therapy that will give us strength to handle the things that this world throws at us. It's not education. It's not how many friends we have. It's not how many times we had family vacations or how much rest we got or whether we were eating right or how well off we were. If you don't want to burn out, truly marry yourself to the one who does not burn, who walks in the fire with us. Allow the joy of the Lord to be your strength. If you want to liberate your people, those people in your life who are enslaved to their own Egypts, if you want to stand before their pharaohs, the pharaohs of drugs, the pharaohs of addiction, vanity, nihilism, or any other false god in these people's lives, if your heart yearns to tell their Pharaoh, let my people go. Stand with the angel of the Lord who called to Moses from a bush that was furious with flame but could not consume him. If you want to not burn out, do not be afraid to burn. Because as the writer of Hebrews declares, our God is a consuming fire. And we are his body. And when we submit to him, we will also not burn out. We will be able to stand before kings as the fire walkers did. And they said this in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Yet, we question God for so much less than they did. They were told to worship other gods at the threat of death. We're told every day to worship other gods on our devices that we keep in our pockets. We question God for so much less, and we doubt his intentions for so much less, and we don't trust him for so much less, and we cheat on him for so much less, and we deny him for so much less. And then we have the audacity to declare burnout. We have the audacity to give up our responsibility to care for his image bearers, to give up on his institutions like our families, our marriages, our churches, to declare those things a lost cause as if God's strength wasn't enough. I know that we get weary on the road to Calvary, but we need to remember that Jesus calls all those who are weary to himself. When we begin to sink beneath the waves, to burn up in the flames, when we can't carry our cross to Calvary for another, because they, in our minds, have become a lost cause, because we have tried and tried, and we cannot possibly hold the floor, hold the door, hold the house, hold the money, or anything else for them any longer, we need to quit looking at the wind and return our eyes to Christ. Do you not remember that we do not find the power to love each other because of our likability of worthiness. Ministry is a lot like having drunk goggles, right? At first, it's cool when somebody comes into the church, and they're new, and it's refreshing, and we get to know that person, and then we start to sober up, and then we start realizing how ugly that person is. And so the world's solution to this is, of course, to stay drunk or to give up. No. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Christ knew that we were ugly and marred, but he loved us anyway, and our ability to love comes because he first loved us. Not by some well of power that's within ourselves. When you think that you cannot go any further, remember the words of God to Paul as Paul pleaded to God to free him from his weakness, from the thorn in his flesh, from his affliction. And as you pray to God for freedom from whatever it is that has been shifting your focus, your thorn in your flesh, remember what God told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. The truth is that there are many reasons why we may never see the positive outcomes that we look for when we invest in another person's life, but that is not a reason to give up. It is not a reason to burn out, to lose heart, and to lose focus. So, do you wait on the Lord? Is the joy of the Lord your strength? Do you allow God to recharge you, or do you find that recharge in other things, like your own accomplishments? Where has this been a challenge for you? Do you walk confidently through the valley of the shadow of death, or do you say, eh, not going to do it, I'm not prepared, God hasn't equipped me for that? Do we attempt to walk in Christ's footsteps? that continually sink because our focus is not faithful. <sighs> Thanks for giving me the platform to talk.